systems are definitely in place now that weren't at the beginning because right. before you didn't think you needed them. And that's just hubris. And that's just naivete that most small business owners have. Most people that are starting out, I know I was, you know, if I build it, they will come. Yeah, that's a lie. Don't believe it. They will not come because they're busy and they're not thinking about you. Now, of course, we've got our sales and marketing. We've got a clear onboarding process. We've got a clear follow-up process. Uh, we've got systems throughout the entire organization now that are not the foundation for how we grow. Because before, like I said, you can start trying to grow without systems, but you become the bottleneck because all those systems are actually happening. It's just you're doing them on your own. So yeah, I became the bottleneck early on and realized I had to peel things out and then write them down to make sure that someone else could do them the way I would want them done. Then you take a minute to train them. Thank you for listening. This is Brett Trainer, the founder and your host of Hardwired for Growth, a podcast where we strive to help first-time founders to scale their startups to a million dollars. Statistics show that only 5% of startups ever reach that threshold. We believe this is more of an execution problem than an idea problem. We do this by having conversations with industry experts and the first-time founders who have successfully scaled their own businesses. Each episode will provide actionable strategies, tactics, and lessons learned from the entrepreneurs themselves. The voice you heard that of one of my go is Dr. David Arrington. David is an author, speaker, and the principal and chief operating officer of Arrington Coaching. They focus on fundamentally helping executives realize their vision and create sustainable change through three-dimensional coaching. David shares his journey as a first-time founder as he built a high-growth training and coaching company literally from a class assignment. He also shares leadership, culture, and people best practices that he teaches to his clients. Areas that we discuss today are why David believes not having a plan is a major reason why most startups don't reach the million-dollar threshold, how Colin Powell's 70% rule helps him make decisions, why culture is the air of an organization because no one notices it until it stinks, early hires should be focused on helping the business make money because cash flow can hide other sins as you are growing, why good leadership is almost hidden under a co-located environment, and bad leadership becomes very visible when you go remote, a very timely for, for today's environment, plus a lot, lot more. Before I take you into the intro, if you enjoy the podcast, please make sure you like, subscribe, and share the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. We would greatly appreciate it. And also, please make sure to check out my free resources page at brettrainer.com forward slash resources. Now, on to the intro. You're listening to Hardwired for Growth, a podcast dedicated to helping early stage entrepreneurs and business owners who are looking for sustainable and scalable growth strategies and tactics. Here's your host, Brett Trainer. I am the principal and chief operating officer of Arrington Coaching. And what we do is fundamentally help executives realize their vision and create sustainable change through three-dimensional coaching. And we work with our clients on a number of levels. Uh, one, we work with individual executives for, through executive coaching. We work with their leadership teams to get everybody on the same page and accelerating their vision being accepted. And finally, we work with the entire organization to make sure that the entire company is speaking the same language. Because when everyone's has a common vocabulary, a lot of the misunderstanding, the miscommunication goes out the window and we're able to help our clients really hit some big targets that uh, before us, they struggle to even get close to. 
Yeah, that's such an underappreciated, maybe it's not a skill set, but a tactic, if you will, to really get the organization. Because I think a lot of folks talk about, you know, speaking the same language between two organizations, you know, within the same org, right, or two functional units. But mm-hmm. it's so important to have the company be able to speak the language, you know, not only internally, but externally. So, your, your ideal customers, are you working with small to mid-sized companies, enterprise, or all of the above? I generally work with larger companies uh, simply because uh, a number of factors, but generally it's it's larger companies. But I have uh, worked with smaller and mid-sized companies. So yeah, the, answer, the long answer is all of the above. The short answer is all of the above. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> You know, one of the reasons I moved towards the the startup world was, you know, I spent a lot of time in the enterprise space, you know, more than half of my career. And I just found the last few years, it was a lot of yelling, you know, from the mountaintops that, hey, things are changing. You got to do business a different way. And so I took, you know, kind of the step back and said, well, maybe instead of trying to change, you know, organizations, you know, I can help companies kind of grow and focus and, and get, you know, some of these pillars you're right as they're they're starting the company versus having to try to to rebuild it. So again, I think that's why one of the the main reasons, well, two things I wanted to have you on the show. One, to talk about your story because you're a fast growing in the training space and I don't want to overgeneralize it. So I want to get into kind of your growth story, but then I do want to pivot and talk about, you know, your your recommendations for founders and leaders as they're starting to scale companies and bring people on and think about culture. But I want to pause on that just for a moment because I think your your story is really interesting. And I'd like to to kind of go back when you started Arrington and you know how long ago was it? And you know, what was really the idea and why did you start the company? So I had been coaching for wow, probably five or seven years beforehand. And it, the funny story is I wasn't planning to start a company. It, and so many things kind of happened serendipitously around me, right? When I talk about the book and you ask me about it, I'm going to tell you, I didn't intend to write this book. I'm going to tell you, I didn't intend to start this company. It just kind of happened. So I was going back to school and I was getting my doctorate in strategic leadership and I was already taking a an emphasis or a concentration in leadership coaching. And I'd been doing the, co- I'd been coaching leaders uh, kind of on the side and as part of my regular job. And one of my classes, I kid you not, one of the classes was on consulting and the teacher made it an assignment that we had to start a company. And so, you know, me being who I am, I didn't just start the company. I actually, cre- I didn't just do a paper company. I actually started the company, uh, which as I, kept working on it, it became clear to me this was where I was going to go. This was my next move. But I'll I'll be very clear, it it didn't start off, you know, crystal clear and a finished product. It was it was and still is very much a work in progress. The first name for my company was kind of a tragedy because I would talk to CEOs and I would say my company name and they would just kind of glaze over and start looking around to talk to somebody else. That's when I knew I needed to change the name because it wasn't resonating. And because it was a, what is it, a, um, a course assignment, right? I just tossed a name on that I thought made sense. And it was Eagle Ridge Consulting, which 
said, it was a lot of letters to say very little about what I was actually offering people. And so through working with a branding coach and hearing my wife tell me, getting the uh, feedback from other you know, executives, I moved from Eagle Ridge Consulting to Arrington Coaching. And uh, we've expanded that to, of course, Arrington Training as well, where we do our online stuff. But that was that's part of the origin story. It's been an interesting road that most entrepreneurs travel. You got the ups, the downs, the good years, the bad years, figuring it all out because like most startups, which I don't think I'll ever not consider as a startup because I'm, I always want to be agile. I want to be able to react quickly and, and make good decisions based on where things are right now. But like most startups, I, w- I was and still am a great technician. I'm a great coach. I'm a great trainer. But sometimes I need to step out of that mode and be the manager and the owner, you know, a la E-Myth, right? So right. that become, that was always my, my Achilles heel until recently where I realized, oh, well, that's, this is why I'm shooting myself in the foot <laughs> because I'm staying where I'm comfortable, but my company needs me to be uncomfortable so that we can grow. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great, there's so much value in that. I think really interesting of how it started, right? You weren't intentional about it, but obviously you found a gap in the marketplace and it sounds like that kind of evolved from, even though I didn't think your name was that horrible, oh, <laughs> I, I was really t- expecting something, you know, much worse, but it makes sense because <laughs> it, it ties, you know, your personality, your name, it makes it, you know, more authentic to who you are. I love the, uh, the businesses that are named, you know, for the founders and, you know, carry that through. And, you know, it's also interesting, you said that, you know, being a practitioner as part of it, you know, that's almost universal to a lot of the founders, especially first time founders that I talk to is, you know, working in my business versus working on it. And it sounds so easy to do, but when it's been your lifeblood and what you've done, it's harder to take that step back. And it's when, most of them do. And almost to a person, they say, hey, you know, I, I wish I would have done this sooner. But in some cases, the business may not be ready for you to do that. So you know, was that kind of part of your, your evolution as you went from, hey, I'm actually going to start a real company in this class to launching it to you know, where you are today? It's phenomenal that the journey that it's taken. And you know, was there a, quite a few pivots as you were going through it? Did you, you know, find different opportunities within the marketplace or were you pretty much spot on when you, you started? So was I spot on when I started? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would argue that it's all pivots. So, and, and that's, it's, if you're not pivoting, you're probably not moving forward. You're either, either like you said, you, you're in your sweet spot and your life is good, which I haven't met anybody that just can't pivot or doesn't need to pivot. Uh, but what we did was we pivoted quickly on a number of fronts. So the training aspect was a skill set I'd had and developed for 20 years, right? But I wasn't really working toward that. And but I got an opportunity to do some training at a major company, and they said, "Hey, can you do this?" And I said, "Of course." And then I figured out how to get it done, which is again very, very startup, right? Right. Uh, say say yes, and then figure it out. And what we did was that's what opened us up into doing a lot of training because I had already I already knew how to do it. It just wasn't a focus, so that was a pivot. Uh, that was a big pivot. But more than that. 
there was strategy behind what we didn't do because that's the way I define strategy. The strategy is more saying what you're not going to do versus saying what you do. I almost said saying what you do do, but you know. <laughs> but uh, so the strategy was we're not going to do uh, we're not going to go down the life coaching route because I didn't feel that that was where I wanted to take the company. So pivots have as much to do with strategy as they do with solvency, right? So we pivoted in places where we knew we could grow and add value. And we actively avoided places where we did. I didn't see value. Of course, we could add value, but I didn't see it being a long-term route for the company. So yeah, and I still pivot. Uh, Right now, we're in a an era of pivots, like we were talking about uh, earlier before we started recording, right? Um, taking my trainings and moving them online, going from an in-person to an online format, that's a huge pivot. And it just takes, it takes effort, takes work, takes intentionality, but it's, a, it's another pivot because, I, again, if you try to stand flat-footed in the world and marketplace that we're in right now, most often you're going to get left behind because things move so quickly. Disruptive change is happening pretty much on a you know, six-month basis. Something major is happening in almost every industry. And now with what's happening in the world, yeah, pivoting is, is necessary. And I like the idea and I like being able to pivot because it keeps us agile. It keeps us in touch with where the marketplace is versus regaling ourselves with our war stories and how we've, you know, succeeded in the past. Cause guess what? Last year's money can't pay this year's bills. Right. No, and that's so good. I love the fact of the intentionality of it too. I think that gets lost sometimes on, you know, founders that are are trying to grow their company. And, you know, I just want to take a, a quick step back and you talked about, you know, the strategy and I really like, you know, not what you do, but you're not going to do, mm-hmm. you know, as you started to pivot from, you know, building the business in the class to the real world, you know, I'm now a training, I've got a corporate client, mm-hmm. you know, did you have a plan? You know, was you, when you say once you got into the business and it was starting, right, I see the opportunity, you know, when was it you actually said, hey, this is what I want, you know, longer term or short term, or you know, did you wing it from the beginning? It doesn't sound like you're a wing it type of a person. So I'm just curious where you were within the, the planning process. Obviously, you talked about the pivots, which everybody does, but so many founders don't have a plan or an mm-hmm. objective of what they want to get out. So I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, how, how you thought about that in the early days. So, and planning is such a broad topic and most people have very loose plans, right? Right. And some plans are intentionally loose because that allows you to stay fluid, right? You, you can anticipate things, but honestly... It wasn't until the last few years that I really got into OKRs and making sure that we had plans, objectives, and moving toward those plans, having the meetings to make sure we stay there. Because for the first several years, uh, we were in business, we were getting good referrals. We were, you know, things were good. We didn't really have to market too much. But then over time, as you know, referrals do die down. Right. Um, it just that's just the way it goes. No one tells you that, but if that's what happens, you think you can live on referrals forever, and then the day comes, you're like, wait a minute, I haven't gotten a referral, and my client, you know, I'm I'm starting to, you know, offboard this client because our our engagement has come to an end, but I don't have a pipeline. So when you hit that once or twice, 
you need to get more intentional about, and you'll find out that's one of my favorite words, intentional. Um, you need to get intentional about creating uh, plans that can actually be achieved. So for the first few years, when things were really, really, really good, I was like, you know, and I say really, really, really good. It was effortless. When it was like that, my plans were very high level. They were really more what I would call wishes than they were plans. Right. Now my plans to continue to grow off of that foundation have gotten very structured, very specific, very measurable, very tangible, because if they aren't, you're going to fail. Fundamentally, everybody wants to make a million dollars with their business. Very few people do because most people don't have plans. They just have an aspiration that, oh yeah, I want to make a million dollars. Yeah, there's going to be a big plan behind that to make sure that happens. And it's going to, it's going to cut across every aspect of your business including the aspects of your business you're not even aware you need to be focusing on. Yeah, that is so true. And it, it, it's funny, one of the, the stats I refer to quite a bit on, on this show is that 5% actually get to the million dollars. Mm-hmm. And you know you can filter out some of the people that were never really serious about it. You can filter out some of the folks that just want to, you know, a lifestyle business or, you know, take time off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always argue that the 5% club, if you will, is only at 5%, not because of a lack of ideas or good ideas. It's all about execution. And you know, I think you started hitting the intentional having the plan and you know, perfect segue to ask you know, you know, from a marketing perspective and, and a process. Uh, I'm a big process guy that you know, when you started to get to that point, you know, did you start implementing some systems and processes in place and allow you to start to scale that were you intentional with it or was it just by we, hey, we need to do this because we can't, you know, get as many people through the, the process as we could before? Just curious where, where you are on kind of the infrastructure, if you will, of, of building a growing company. So systems are definitely in place now that weren't at the beginning because right. before you didn't think you needed them. And that's just hubris. And that's just naivete that most small business owners have. Most people that are starting out, I know I was, you know, if I build it, they will come. Yeah, that's a lie. Don't believe it. They will not come because they're busy and they're not thinking about you. Now, of course, we've got our sales and marketing. We've got a clear onboarding process. We've got a clear follow-up process. Uh, We've got systems throughout the entire organization now that are not the foundation for how we grow. Because before, like I said, you can start trying to grow without systems, but you become the bottleneck. Because all those systems are actually happening. It's just you're doing them on your own. So yeah, I became the bottleneck early on and realized I had to peel things out and then write them down to make sure that someone else could do them the way I would want them done. Then you take a minute to train them and then you go back to doing what you're doing until you realize, whoa, this, this other thing I'm doing over here is taking up so much time. I need to systematize this and give it to someone else so I can keep doing the things that are going to grow the business. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And, you know, maybe to, to close out this area before we kind of pivot to, you know, what I would call your expertise around the the people and training and developing the culture, you mm-hmm. know, any other words of wisdom or things that you wish you would have done differently other than maybe some of the things we've talked about being a first-time founder or advice to founders as they're just starting to ramp up and get intentional about growing the business? Okay, so I'll give you this. And it's going to sound so antithetical to what you'd expect. I'd say stop reading books about growing your business and just work on your business. 
because I found myself getting stuck reading book after book after book after book. Everybody's giving you a different formula, a different theory, a different approach. What happens is you get overwhelmed and then you do none of those things and you get stuck. So what I would say is I would say, just start moving forward. Take what you have now, execute what you have now, like you were saying earlier. And as you grow, then you figure out what you need for the next stage. But at some point, stop processing new ideas and just move forward. Yeah, that is that's so true. And I, there's a, a former colleague of mine who used to remind me all the time that, you know, that done is better than perfect. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. move on, learn from it. And I still struggle with that. That's one of my things I continually have to work on is getting past the, you know, get done is better than perfect. Keep moving. You can iterate and, and move on. So I think that's such really good advice and you can get just paralyzed versus moving and sounds and so simple, but right. I was just going to say just two ways to look at this. One is I I love Colin Powell's quote. He would say that when he had 70% of the information, he would make a decision. He would move forward. This is when he was a general in battlefield situations. So he has 70% and he's moving forward. I took that as my move forward point. If I felt it was 70% of the way there, yeah, we can go. If if I didn't feel like it was 70% of the way there, I'd have to keep either iterating, working on it, or just trash it and move on. The second aspect is you. no one can really tell you how to grow your business, which is why I'm a coach and not a consultant, right? No one can tell you how to grow your business. It's going to be intuitive to you. There's some things that go across the board that every business has to have, but the way you grow your business, the culture you instill, the the people you hire, the way your organization works internally, only you can do that. And you'll never get that done if you're constantly stuck in analysis paralysis. Just get out and get it done. Just start moving, start making some money, start calling clients, start you know sending out emails, start following up, just do the work. Take today's step and then don't worry about tomorrow. Take tomorrow's step tomorrow, but take the steps you can take today. Yeah, that is so good. And I love the the comment coach versus consultant and especially with a growing business because no two businesses are the same. We're going to have the exact same blueprint or do the exact same tactics in order to get there. It's And I, I'm going to have to go look up that uh, Colin Powell thing. I love the uh, 70% of the information to make a decision versus... Yep you know, 90 or 95 or 99% that uh, if it worked for him and he was highly successful and is still successful, I think that's a, a really good, you know, rule of thumb for that. And also a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk to you about next is, you know, as founders and business owners are starting to grow their company and, you know, they're going to start hiring their first employees and they're thinking about culture and, you know, is it the right fit? You know, I would love to get your perspective and advice to those founders as they're starting to hire. How would you, you know, approach it knowing obviously your time in this space and this is what you do with, with helping people to think about this? So when we look at culture, I like to think of it as the air of an organization because I say no one notices it until it stinks, right? So <laughs> you have a culture. You always, when you got two people together, you're, you're creating a culture. The problem is most cultures are, un, they're not intentional. They're unconsidered until you think you got 15 or 20 people and now things are being done that you wouldn't have appreciated or you've never, never done it that way. So then culture becomes a, a talking point. And then what most founders do, because for whatever reason, I don't know why 
ping pong tables became the cultural icon. But honestly, that is a Band-Aid. And it's, it's not terribly effective to internal, you know, to develop internal culture. To a certain extent, people say, okay, I guess it means you guys honor and, and respect free time and taking a break. But it's really more of a signal to the outside world that, hey, we're cool, we're hip, we're now. It doesn't really move the gauge inside. So when it comes to creating culture, you've got to know what type of organization you want to run. And culture becomes pretty much your internal agreement among one another. How are we going to treat each other? How are we going to get work done? How are we going to respond when things go wrong? What does a good day at this organization look like? And that's going to depend on a number of factors. But if it's not focused, first and foremost, on your people, right, then it's not going to be terribly effective in the short term and perhaps in the long term. Because if it's all about just, you know, if if people feel like they're cogs in a machine when they come to work and they're not valued, they're not appreciated, they're not heard, that's going to wear on people and you're going to lose some of your best people up front. You're going to lose some of your A players because they want to go places where they are heard and appreciated. Uh, if there's no accountability in your culture where you have meetings that just turn into nothing and you're kind of having Groundhog's Day every day, you're going to lose your best people. What people really don't understand, what founders don't understand is that culture is one of your your biggest selling points. When it's done right, it's a recruiting tool. When it's done right, it is a retention tool. When it's done right, it's a marketing tool. It comes in into, it plays a role in so many aspects of organizational growth, but it's often an afterthought and people think they have to have a lot of people on staff in order to to start talking culture. And you really don't. You really, once you've got a few people, you should start talking about culture. You should start talking about what it feels like to work here and understand that you're going to have to fight to keep that as the organization grows because new people will come in with ideas from other places and they may not be a cultural fit. That has to be addressed. And, you know, Maybe the culture needs to pivot a little, or maybe that person needs to understand how things, and I hate even saying it, how things are done here, because that's important. Your culture does define you, and it defines the, the product you put out. Yeah, that's so, so true. And, and I'm curious on your perspective, too, and think about the culture of an organization, especially if you know, you're moving from a founder, uh, founder-led company, and maybe it is just the founder and maybe a couple of part-time folks. Mm-hmm. Is there anything to the culture being aligned with the, the personality of a founder? Or can you find that a founder can pivot you know, a culture of an organization that may not be aligned exactly with the natural state of the founder? Does that make sense? I think what, so I think what you're asking is, does the culture have to be tied to the personality of the founder? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so, okay. So most times it will be, obviously, because it's just going to be what they want, especially in small organizations. But that is a limiting factor, especially in small organizations, because that assumes that the founder's approach, perspective, worldview is absolutely right in every situation, and it's not. Uh, okay. So there has to be some level of give and take, and a good leader will recognize where they have blind spots. And when they hear a good suggestion that didn't come out of their mouth, they'll be able to accept it and perhaps adjust the way things are done so that the culture can grow 
beyond them because it's almost like a snowball. You, you know, pushing a snowball down a hill, you, you know, it gets bigger and bigger on the way down. So you as the founder are the, the initial snowball but as you release your company, and that's a, just a huge topic right there, uh, as you release your company to the people that work with you, m- less and less of it is driven by you and more and more of it is an organic outgrowth of what's happening in the company. Here's the rub. It shouldn't ever get to the point where, and too often it does, it becomes toxic because no one's paying attention to it. So in that snowball it, you know, metaphor, it's going down the hill and it's changing, but there should be someone watching that happen and making sure when things start getting a little out of whack, somebody's there to say, hey, wait a minute, that's we don't want this to be the way we work or is it the, the way we want to work? Somebody's right. got to be asking those tough questions uh, because otherwise your leadership team is going to be on a different on on multiple planets. They won't even be on different pages. They'll be on different planets. And then you'll get the infighting at leadership levels, which only trickles down and upends all of your productivity, morale, and engagement. Yeah, that is so true. So maybe a better way to think about it is making sure, at least in the early days, the folks you're bringing on are aligned with your why. Why are we doing this? Why do I see the vision of this company versus the full personality? I think that's a a slightly better way of looking at it. Absolutely. Because you don't want people that are just like you because you want a diversity of thought. Sure. You want people that can challenge you, that you respect and would listen to their challenges. So as the company grows, it's growing in a healthy version and a healthy mode versus uh, growing based only on what you and only you want the company to do. Because again, last time I checked, none of us were omniscient. We, we're all trying to you know, figure it out on the way and we grow better together. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've seen and heard from a few founders that when they brought a co-founder on or their first part of the leadership team didn't necessarily buy into the vision or the why and you could have the five smartest people in the world, but if you can't get those five people to align on you know, why you're doing this and where you're going, you, you might as well forget about it. You could take, it to, I think what you were mentioning, the infighting and the disagreement will just bring that, that org to a halt. Yeah, and, that, and it, the culture is one aspect, but there's also communication. I've worked with companies that have worked together, like their leadership team worked together so long, they kind of had this unspoken conversation, but it was terrible because they were all, they were assuming things that people weren't saying. So I would sit in the meetings and I would literally ask, what did that person just say? And I'd get two different answers. One from the person who thought they heard something and the other from the person who was actually speaking. And what you end up finding is that we're miscommunicating because we're taking our relationships for granted. So culture is one aspect of it, but it was the culture that kind of led to that type of quick response, let's move through it. And of course, I understand what she's saying versus a culture of let's slow down. Let me make sure I understand so we don't make mistakes down the road. Yeah, that's so good. So good. And maybe just to close out on on this side of it, you know, is there advice, I think, as you were starting, you realizing that you need to start working on your business, not in your business, you know, what's, and maybe there is no one answer. What's the best way for founders to start thinking about their first hires? You know, I tend to lean towards What's the skill set I'm going to have to replace or maybe a strength I don't have? But I'd Mm -hmm. love to get your perspective on as you're starting to bring on additional folks, you know, what's the best way to think about that? I would early on bring on people who are going to help you make money. 
um, because that's why businesses go out of business because of cash flow. It's usually, you know, we can, uh, cash flow covers a multitude of sins, right? So if you can find people that are going to help you and can also make money for the company, I would encourage you to bring them on because it will ease other strains and other stresses down the road. Whether that is a skill set you have, whether you're a salesperson and they're another salesperson or they're the marketing person or whatever it is, if they can help you bring the company forward in a cash position, that would always be one of the early things I would say. Think about hiring someone to do that. But again, that's going to be case by case because if you've got great cash flow and your culture's in the toilet, then you may want to bring somebody in like me that's going to help fix that problem before it affects and and destroys culture, you know, the entire company from the inside out. Yeah, so there's, no, it depends. <laughs> it always depends, right? But sure. I would tell most small businesses, find someone who's going to help you make money so you can extend the runway, right? So you have more time to grow the business versus just, you know, struggling with cash flow issues. Because once you do bring someone on, there is a payroll expense now right. that has to be met and it, that can exacerbate other problems. Make sure. No, I think that that's great advice. And I think maybe one follow-up question for you on that is sort of along those lines is early days, you know, I talk a lot to a lot of founders and their first employees tend to be unicorns in the sense that they do a lot of different jobs and plug the gaps. But then as you start to grow and specialize, you you have a challenge with that unicorn employee that was so mm-hmm. used to and probably enjoys doing a lot of different things. What I know it's a good problem to have, but you know, what are your thoughts or recommendations, you know, at that point in, in how to handle or support, you know, that type of growth as you start to move towards specialization? So as you're hiring that first person and you do get a unicorn, a jack of all trades, master of none, and yeah. you gotta remember master of none. I would make it very clear what their role is now and into the future. So you want to let them know that what they're doing today is probably not going to be what they're doing in a year. You got to start seeding that now or else when you start hiring more people, they're going to see those other people as a threat to what they're doing. So you got to start planning for them to be comfortable with other people taking parts of what they do because you have a vision and a goal and a plan for their career path within your organization. Otherwise, they're going to react poorly. They can become, they start off really, really well. And then over time, they can become the ones who who become toxic and you have to let go. And that's often because the expectation was, I'm always going to be this at this company. Here's what I do. Here's the value I add. And anybody that comes close to that is, you know, attacking me. And then they become toxic and things don't have to go that way. It's just a matter of being very upfront, communicating and communicating often. Don't let it, don't say it once. You said it in the, in their interview. And then, you know, two years later, you're wondering why they don't remember that. You got to keep keep them on the same page. So as the company grows, their understanding of the expectations for them can grow as well. And they can be comfortable with assuming a new role, a new assignment, and a new position in the company. That's not a, they won't see it as a demotion, but actually just a spreading of the load. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, helping them to see that they actually were part of the reason that they're getting to this point because you helped them grow to that point. And, you know, the two things I wrote down as you were talking about that communication and expectations, you know, Mm -hmm. ties back to 
to what you were you were looking at. So now that's that's fantastic, and we probably could spend another you know forty minutes talking about this. So I may have to have you back for a part two. But I do want to kind of pivot to. I know you just released a, a new book called oh, yeah. Promotable. I'd love mm-hmm. for you to share with the audience a little bit about you know what's what's in the book. What can they expect, and why did you write it? Again, like I told you with the book, it was, it, I didn't intend for this to be my first book. I was going to write something on leadership or write something on uh, high performing teams, things that I teach classes on, right? And it didn't happen. I was writing this, what is it, uh, skyscraper post on, I think it was 25 ways to get promoted after you've been passed over. And it, it started off small and it ended up around five or 8,000 words. And my wife looked at me and she said, There's your book. And I said, Okay. So then it was just a process of shaping it to be something more than just the collection of ideas into something that was a little more cohesive and felt like you were having a conversation with me. Felt like you were sitting over coffee and we were just shooting the breeze and I was giving you a lot of great leadership insights, a lot of great uh, ways to become more valuable in your company because that's the the topic is, you know, promotable, demonstrate your value, highlight your potential, land your next promotion. And it came out literally right before everything went haywire. And it feels like dog years, but it's only been a few weeks, to be honest. And uh, it's gotten a lot of great reviews. And I put myself into the book. And the audiobook is actually in the works as we speak, should be out in the next week or so. But yeah, it's, it is fundamentally a I almost want to say it is a love song to Gen X as well, because I do reference Gen X a lot because we seem, I'm a Gen Xer, and it seems like when it comes to career and upward mobility, Gen X seems to get the short end of the stick because we're stuck between the boomers and the millennials and now the the Gen Z, and um, we're the silent generation almost, and I wanted to help Gen Xers climb the corporate ladder because they are competent and capable as well. Yeah, no, and I think it, it's so good. And I love one of your taglines from it. I think you, or maybe it was a, a review that had the no sleaze approach right, oh, yeah. to, to promotion. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, 100% you know, and sleaze free. Sleaze free, that's what it was. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, it, but it's so true. I mean, I, I grew up in kind of that era of in the enterprise world as well, where you just did certain things and the people that got ahead tended to cut corners or did certain things that maybe others weren't comfortable doing, but it got them promoted quicker. And, you know, in some cases it was probably a fair, right? It was reasonable. It made sense. But, mm-hmm. you know, trying to navigate in that world today, I think, you know, there's just so much value in that and, you know, in life, right? If, you know, I'm a big believer in karma yeah, <laughs> and the fact that somebody's actually out there yourself, that's, you've got the wealth of experience kind of writing that blueprint of how to do it, I think is going to be so valuable. And, you know, it's a, quite honestly, a long time coming. I don't recall or haven't seen much where, you know, anybody's talking about that. A lot of it is the, you know, the, what was it, the millennials or Gen Z and, you know, how yep. to get ahead in your career. Hey, I've been in this job for nine months. I need to get promoted. You know, there's <laughs> quite a bit in, uh, of chatter and noise about that, but there's that whole other level that's ready to take on, you know, senior leadership roles that, yep. you know, I think, so I think your timing as well, well, timing as well in the sense of releasing the book and, you know, we're in some crazy 
crazy times at the moment, but I think it's, you know, it's going to be really well received. And I think we can almost do another episode on, on what you have in, in that book as well. So congrats on, on getting that out. And I'm sure it's going to do really, really well in the not too distant future. Oh yeah, no worries. And you're absolutely right. I didn't see a lot on it. Again, I wasn't writing, I wasn't planning to write this book, right? But as I did the research and as I kept looking, I didn't see a lot on the topic, much less geared at Gen X. Now, honestly, when I say it in the in the intro, the approaches that I share in this book work with any generation, but I wanted to speak to Gen, <laughs> I want to speak to my generation, Gen X, because yeah, no one talks about us. We're lost in the sauce. We are pretty much just forgotten. And that's not good because you hit the nail on the head. After after boomers, you know, finally, you know, move out of the workforce because they're actually coming back right now, which is interesting. Um, but when they move out, we're the ones there that are going to be in those senior leadership positions. I had a conversation with someone two or three days ago, and they specifically said they were having a career midlife crisis because they could not be promoted. And they're already senior, but they're trying to move on to the next level. And it just gets more and more difficult if you don't have a plan, which is what the book was designed to give you. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and such good reading. So thank you for sharing that. And last, before I transition to our closing time question, you know, what's next for you in, in Arrington? Man, for me, uh, we are, like I said, we are putting more courses online. I am, we're ramping up our marketing machine. <laughs> we're definitely moving forward in this time of uncertainty. We're, we're certain. I, I know a lot's going on, but I'm looking to grow now because there's so much need for people. Uh, leadership has just shifted. Like There's been a seismic shift. Just the idea of leading virtual teams, which is, you know, again, it's my, it was what I did my um, doctoral presentation on, uh, leading virtual teams, right? <laughs> so that is such a needed skill set because regular leadership, when you're working with co-located teams, is much different than leading a virtual team effectively. So that's a, one of the courses we're building. Executive Presence, another course we're building because, again, how do you lead through times of unprecedented crisis? You don't have to be Superman or Superwoman. You just need to understand a few concepts of how to lead effectively when you're stressed out and overwhelmed and the world seems to be falling around, in around you. And guess what? If you can master that, you'll be a much better, what I say, normal time leader or uh, yeah. leader when things aren't so stressful and aren't so chaotic. So yeah, those are the things. Moving things online, uh, identifying different connections like you, Brett, this is awesome. I, and I want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. I, I, I messed up and didn't say that earlier, but thank you so much. Love to come back again if you want to have me. Uh, but this kind of thing, just being able to connect with other leaders, other thought leaders, that's something uh, that's, that's next up for me. Oh, that's awesome. And, you, and we keep talking about it the next time, but you know, I think that the remote... Uh, the cat's out of the bag, right? You've Absolutely. got all these workers now. And if you're a new founder slash CEO and leader, you know, it's going to be the new normal. You're not going to be able to get everybody back into shared office spaces. And, you know, I definitely look forward to when that, that course comes out because we're heading to uncharted waters. I know there's some companies and smaller companies that have done well with virtual or all virtual teams, but mm -hmm. 
I think the last stat I saw was like, you know, 8% of the U.S. workforce is remote or virtual. So if that goes anywhere to double, triple that number, you're right, it's going to be a whole new challenge for folks. It's a, so again, it's a whole new challenge now because you weren't, nobody was really trained to do this. I go in and I train leaders, managers. Most of them have multiple, like double digit years in management. And when I just talk about accountability, they glaze over, not because they're unintelligent or, or incompetent. It's because no one's giving them real answers to these. What does it mean to hold people accountable? How do I implement that? What does that look like in reality? So when you talk about a struggling to hold people accountable when you're face to face, it's, <laughs> I don't want to say exponentially, yeah. it is uh, many times more difficult to do that when you don't see someone. And I was having another conversation yesterday uh, where we were talking about how good leadership is almost hidden under a co-located environment. You kind of assume it. Bad leadership becomes very visible when you go remote. Because I've heard horror stories of people demanding that you have your camera on all day or demanding that oh, yeah. <laughs> you, be, you know, you're, you'd be available 24-7 now. Demanding. That's just your insecurity showing up in a way that's tangible and painful to your team. So it, you're just adding more stress. And I don't know where they get these ideas. But this is a misunderstanding of accountability. It's their insecurity showing up. And furthermore, it's just a misunderstanding of how you were working with people before because you didn't have cameras on them all the time before. Why do you need one now? Right. So it, it's, it's just, it's, it's bringing to the forefront that we always had a leadership crisis, that there, you know, the idea of leadership is out there, but the actual implementation is of good leadership is far more rare than we give it credit for. Yeah, no, I think that is so true. And it does expose, you know, poor leadership much quicker. And, you know, a lot of these brands in a bigger picture, I think, are going to weed themselves out of how they're reacting, you know, during this crisis and what they do. And, you know, just to, to tie off on the remote, you know, my super sure. simplistic approach is if you don't trust your employee to work remotely, then you didn't hire the right person, right? And so maybe it's bigger than that. You're not the right leader to handle it. But you're right. If you've got the right person in place, it doesn't matter where they're doing their job. They're going to get their job done. Exactly. And I think a bigger problem right now is that remote workers are trying to demonstrate their productivity and they're going to the, to the far side now. They're basically overworking. They're working longer hours. You and I work from home. And because we work from home, we figured out how to manage that. If you've been working you know, in an office and now you're working from home, now two worlds have collided. Relationship right. George has met, you know, friend George, right? And they're not supposed to meet. That was a Seinfeld <laughs> reference if you missed it, right? Um, but now what happens is you've got to figure out how many hours you're working. How, And I think more remote workers are, I give them the benefit of the doubt and say, I think they're trying to do too much now, which is going to lead to burnout in the next month or so. So you're going to see this, this whole... The, the entire situation is going to keep seesawing back and forth uh, as we try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. It is. It's fascinating. There's probably no right or wrong. And it's part of that. Just do and learn and, and always constantly trying to improve the, you know, the process or at least the outcome. So, exactly. um, all right, before I, we wrap this up completely, I always like to close with, you know, one question, uh, especially coming from thought leaders and, uh, folks, 
you know, similar to yourself that run companies, what is one thing you would highly recommend to others? I thought you shared a lot of advice and value already, but is there one thing that you would recommend to folks? It could be personal or professional. Well, I think it would be be deliberate and intentional about your state of mind. When we started talking, you said, hey, Dave, how are you doing? I said, on top of the world, best day ever. That is a choice. I get to choose my state of mind, so I choose a sunny one. This will come in handy for, if you're a founder, if you're running a business, you're going to be out of control on a lot of things. A lot of things are outside of your control. If clients uh, pay, if they, if they sign up, all that good stuff leads to a lot of stress. And the one thing that's helped me get through it is always choosing to be on top of the world, having the best day ever. Um, because I've had I, people will call me, I'll have a client say, well, you know, David, I mean, this happened last week. A client was impacted by the shutdown. Their, their business had to close. So guess who uh, couldn't get paid? That would be me. And um, they said, hey, David, we're going to start up as soon as we get back. But right now we've got to make sure we can come back. I said, no worries. When I spoke to someone hours later, they asked me how I was doing. I said, I'm on top of the world, but having the best day ever. And I meant it because good things always happen. I believe the world uh, is, is conspiring to do great things for me. And I, I would encourage your listeners to take on that same state of mind. Yeah, I love it. I can't think of a better way to, to close out this episode. And one, I really want to uh, thank you again for your time and, and sharing your knowledge. I think this was really fascinating pleasure. and we probably could have like said talk for another hour. At least I would have been able to ask questions for that. So just in last, if people want to find out more about you, and you know the company, what's the best place for folks to find you? So you can find me at arringtoncoaching.com. Uh, if you want some of the freebies that are in the book, then you go to arringtoncoaching.com slash promotable dash book. So I'm letting you in on that little secret, just your listeners. You know, it's awesome. just, just between you, me, and your listeners. Uh, and then if you wanted to grab a uh, free course. I, I have some free courses that may be of value and we're always adding more courses on arringtontraining.com. Awesome. And I will make sure we add that to the show notes and I highly encourage the audience to go check, check it out because you do have a large amount of free and high quality content on your website. <laughs> That's well worth, worth the visit. So David, again, thank you very much for joining the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I already know this, but you know, have a great rest of your day. <laughs> I will, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Brett. Awesome. Thanks. You've been listening to Hardwired for Growth. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. <laughs>